0: I am glad that you're here today. If Jesus Christ is your living hope, would you say amen? amen? That's great confidence that you have. If you happen to have a graduating senior from high school with you today, parents, or if you're a graduating senior, maybe you're here by yourself, I'm gonna ask you, would you uh, stand up for just a minute? I know that's really uncomfortable for you. There's more than one here. You're the only one brave enough, apparently. All right, way to go, Olivia? In in each of the three services, they've been so resistant to do that. Thank you for doing that, for standing up. But congratulations. Well done. You're about to step out on a huge adventure, right? Adulthood. Gotta do adulthood now, right? And there's no going back. We've all been there. We know that what that that step is. So I I want to pray for you, but I want to pray for all of us this morning because what we're gonna find in the book of Romans is this great adventure where God calls us out upon the water that we just sang about. You call me out upon the water, places where my feet could fail. You're about to encounter that, right? You've got to step out and trust God. Where Paul's taken us in Romans this morning is going to speak to every one of us about that. I don't care if you're 90 or 9. You're going to be challenged this morning with what God might have in store for you next. All right? So let's pray that way, and then we'll dive in. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for every single person in this auditorium. Thank you for the graduating seniors that are here. Thank you for people who are watching online. God, that you would speak to us right now is our great desire, but I pray first for our graduating high school seniors that you would really bless them as they are faithful and loyal to you. You've promised that you would be powerful to those who are loyal to you, and so we ask for that right now, claim that that you cast your eyes upon this earth and you look for people who are loyal to you, you said you would not turn your back on them. So Father, I pray that for our graduating seniors that they would find themselves being loyal and faithful to you and you in turn are faithful and loyal back. God, as we prepare our hearts for looking at what was written 2,000 years ago, I pray that you would illuminate our understanding through the work of the Holy Spirit right now. And where you need to bring conviction and where you need to bring challenge, Father, we invite that, even if it might not be comfortable, where you need to press, press, and where you need to encourage, encourage. God, I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name, amen. I've been stewing on um, something that was written many, many years before Jesus walked the planet. It was written by King Solomon, and it's in the book of Proverbs. And it has to do with you and I laying our plans for the future. You see it up on the screen, Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a man plans his way. All of us have our plans. We have the things that we desire to do. And we find ourselves stepping out and wanting to take on challenges. But Solomon quickly reminds us, it's the Lord who actually directs your steps. You may plan your way, but the Lord directs your steps. You're going to find that specifically applying to what we're going to talk about today. We'll come back to that verse towards the end. The last time we were together, we saw Paul closing this major theological section of the book of Romans, and he did that by coming to verse 13, and he reminded us of who we are. But leading up to verse 13, he kept talking about this bond of hope, and he used the word hope five times in such a short period of time. He kept talking about this hope, this thing that's set before us. So we used that as a launching platform the last time we were together to talk about heaven, because that's what Paul was really driving towards. What's in store for us? We we looked at the details, the things that are waiting for us specifically, This, this thing called heaven. And so we learned in greater detail of the victory that Jesus has accomplished and it reminded us again that whatever difficulty you might be facing today, whatever hard thing you might be going through right at this moment, it is absolutely bearable because there is a better day ahead, amen? that that's why God put that in the Bible to encourage us. And that's reflective of what Paul wrote in verse four. Let me show you again and remind you what that said, Romans 15, four. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God intends for you to get hope from the reading of your Bible. Hope is where we began in early May. By the time the end of today rolls around, you're going to see that Paul needs to be reminded of this. No one needs to be reminded of this more than Paul. Paul's going to need to read Paul because he's coming into a period of time where it's going to get tough, and he needs to be reminded of the encouragement and the hope. So verse 14 actually begins what amounts to an epilogue. He begins saying farewell to people, and you find that especially in chapter 16. He begins the final comments on his work, and he talks about his future plans, and he begins his farewell. So you should know this this morning. Maybe you already pulled your notes out of your bulletin this morning, and you saw that it said Romans part 89A, okay? That means there must be a part B, right? Okay, so there's Romans part 89B next week, and there's a reason for that. There's no way what we're about to do could fit into one morning. You'd be here till one o'clock in the afternoon. And yet, it is so important that we set it up to understand what happens when things don't go according to your plans. What about when you plan things and things don't go according to the way you planned them? And Paul's the one that's going to find himself in that very situation. Now, remember, as you walk into this, except for a very few people in the church at Rome... Paul didn't know the people. It'd be like him sitting down to write a letter in the Middle East to us here at New Hope. He he knew of them, but he didn't know them. He knew a few of them. You see him mention them by name, but he didn't know them intimately, yet he talks to them tenderly as though they're really close friends. And he confronts them with boldness. He remember using the term, he's got strong believers and weak believers in the church, and we found out that was actually talking about the mature in Christ and those who are immature in Christ. Will you find him bearing his heart exactly the same way this morning? Go with me to verse 14. Hopefully you have your Bible open. There's some things you're going to want to circle this morning. It says in verse 14, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." And we're going to take this in big chunks because we're going to make it all the way to verse 33, but we can't rush through it because if you rush through it, you're going to miss some really significant things that he's communicating here. So we can't read it too quickly. We need to meditate on this, Scripture says. So first of all, here's three big things. Why does he say, my brethren? Why does he launch that way? He's been writing to them through 15 chapters now. He's reminding them that he identifies with them as brothers and sisters in Christ He knows that they have salvation in Jesus. So that's the first component of that, but also there's a common objective among them as brothers and sisters. They're maturing believers who are united in Jesus. Do you happen to remember all the way back at the beginning of Romans? Maybe you weren't even here when we started, but perhaps you were. Maybe you've read Romans chapter one before. Think back with me to June of 2016. That's when we launched, and we were in the book of Romans, and in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, look at the way Paul encourages these people. Look on the screen. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He begins Romans with encouraging them. He ends Romans with encouraging them. They're not perfect, but they're not defective. They're not deficient, so he's encouraging them to press on, just like he would be writing to us. So for that reason, I find it all the more compelling when I see that he has an expectation that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ would be encouraging one another and admonishing one another. Do you see that in verse 14? He says you're able to admonish one another. You might even want to circle that in your own Bible. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning, and I want you to see it on the screen and maybe look at it in your notes, maybe you already did, nuthateo. And, and many times when you think of admonishing someone, it sounds harsh, but that's not the way this term is used. Read the definition very carefully to come alongside someone, to put it into their mind, gently reproving, to admonish or to warn them. So it carries this idea of encouraging someone, advising them. Now this is a comprehensive term for counseling one another. In context, it refers to coming alongside someone that you're in relationship with. He's not talking about the spiritual gift of counseling. That would be Pastor Gary. Gary's in care ministry, and he does the counseling here at the church. He's spiritually gifted to do that. This is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who are gifted counselors. He's talking about the responsibility that every one of us has as a believer in Christ to speak into the lives of someone else. Because none of us is so wise, we don't need to hear anything more, right? We all need each other to speak into each other's lives. None of us is at that point where we're so wise. So here's what he's done. He's just reminded them of their role, and then he reminds them of his role. So he says in verse 15, I've written very boldly to you on some points. Essentially, he's just stirring their memory, saying, do you remember all the basic theological things I've written to you about? So when you come to verse 16, he says, here's how I've done it. I've been ministering as a priest the gospel of God. Now, that's an interesting statement. He says, I've been serving as a priest with the goal of advancing the gospel. Now, what's remarkable to me about that is Paul didn't inherit a priestly office. Remember, he's Jewish. He knows what priests are. Priests are the ones that bring the sacrifices to God. He was not born a Levite. What's he talking about here? He's borrowing the imagery He's saying, I'm doing something specific here. And he's using the language of ceremony to picture his role. What's the offering that he's been bringing? All the Gentiles. All the people of the Greek-speaking world that he's been working with. And he's saying, God, here they are before you. All those ones whom Paul has led to faith in Jesus through the work of Paul. So he's a priest in the same way that you're a priest. Maybe you already read that in the notes this morning. It's called the priesthood of believers. You have a responsibility as a priest. And so moms, dads, maybe grandparents here, or maybe a friend in school, you've led someone to faith in Jesus Christ. You acted as a priest in that role, bringing that one before God. You did a priestly function. Paul's talking about that same thing. So figuratively, he's talking about himself that way. What has been his supreme offering to God? this multitude of Gentiles, and I'm not thinking tens and 20s, thinking not even hundreds, I'm thinking thousands and tens of thousands of people who've learned about Jesus at that period of time through the work that Paul has done. Now, knowing all of that helps you understand why he says what he does in verse 17. Go forward. Therefore... In Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Keep going, verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And notice right away, Paul's taking no credit whatsoever. He's immediately explaining, what's happened here has happened through Jesus, but he's done it through me. So he's not boasting in what he's accomplished, but what Jesus has done through him. Now, this especially keeps me in check in 2019. Yesterday, I drove over to the new property. If if you're new to New Hope, maybe you didn't know we're building a new building, and we'll be opening that this summer. I, I drove over and sat in the parking lot, just sat on the asphalt yesterday and was just drinking in what God has done. And it's amazing. If you haven't driven by recently, just go by and look at the landscaping that's been done in the last week. And I was just thinking to myself, God, you are so astounding. Look what you have done. But in that moment, it becomes that fine balance of pride, where pride rears its ugly head And begins pressing on the heart of Mark. And so we're told in Scripture, we're admonished actually not to be boasting of the things that we've done, but rather what God has done. And it's a match for what Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 10, 17. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? It's a great verse. Do you know what that requires right there? Regardless of what God has done in your life or is doing in your life right now, that requires humility. And that's especially a hard one for me to check myself on. Because I know that I have no right to take credit for any spiritual outcome whatsoever. I have every right to boast in what God has done. And there's a fine balance there. Because even within that, it can turn it into, look, look what I've done. Here's my issue with it. My, I'm just speaking of me personally. My mom especially tried to keep me in check in my 20s in, in high school. Um, because she said, Mark, you're the only person I have ever met who has a self-feeding ego, right? I'm constantly complimenting myself. I like myself. And and so, look what I've done. And mom would say, Mark, that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. I know some of you are identifying. The guys came up to me after the last service, especially true of guys for some reason. We have big egos in our 20s. We think there's nothing we can't do. And, and I had that attitude and friends around me would say, man, your ego's huge. God's gonna have to really put you in check. Well, how do we do that? Because it requires humility to boast in Christ and not in ourself. For Paul's work, he had to keep reminding himself, you can't allow this issue of pride to keep in, creeping in. So how do we avoid the issue of pride well, we've got to keep proper perspective. And this is how Paul did it. And I want you to see the balance between the two sides. Look with me on the screen at 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now, what if he stopped right there? That'd be all about him, right? But look at the second part. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. See, this is a balance of the two. You've got to keep that pride in check. So Paul's reminding himself, you're not all that, Paul. This, this is your history. This is what you've done. He said to himself, I am the chief of sinners. A healthy self-evaluation will keep you from pride. Oh, church, that we would all reflect Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Look with me on the screen. It says this, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good, isn't it? Amen to that one. Amen to that one, right, church? Amen to that one, right? That's powerful admonition. So for his part, Paul's work has produced a visible result. He says what it is in verse 18. He says, my work, it's produced the obedience of the Gentiles. And what's he talking about? Did you know that when you responded to faith in Jesus Christ, when you became a believer, that you rejected the disobedience of God and you became obedient to God? See, if you're living apart from God, if you're living apart from Jesus and you want nothing to do with him, scripture says you're actually in disobedience against God and God's gotta do something with that. But if you've recognized and you surrender to who Jesus is, you're actually living in obedience. You have hit that place. So when you responded to the gospel, that was a call to obedience. And if you're following Jesus, you have in obedience surrendered your life to him. So you came to some point where you recognize, I can't do this on my own. I can't get to heaven on my own. My righteousness is dirty. So in context, when he uses the word obedience here, he's talking about obedience from the heart, and it's a synonym for saving faith. Now put that together with this factual statement that he's making. He says, I've done all of this from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Paul's strategy has always been the same, to go to the major urban centers. He always has focused his activities on the metropolitan areas. So for you and I, I'd be like, hey, I've gone to New York City and done this. I've gone to Cincinnati, all the way up to Chicago. He's making this 1,400-mile loop when he says, Jerusalem to Illyricum. So from Jerusalem, as far as he could go in the southeast, all the way through Asia Minor, all the way through Macedonia, all the way through Greece, even as far as Illyricum. What is that? Well, that's today what we know of as Yugoslavia, even though the Bible doesn't record that journey. Paul mentions it right here. It's what we know of as Albania, that part of Eastern Europe. Paul apparently made it up there. He says, I went there too, but we don't get any record of it. So from southern Israel all the way up through what we know today as Syria, up into Turkey, all the way through Greece and into Albania and Yugoslavia, he faithfully did all that God called him to, and he didn't allow anything to deter him. I even hesitated to put this next passage in here just because of the length of it, but I thought it was so powerful to remind us what some of these individuals have done to put themselves in a place where they advance the gospel no matter what. When God called them out upon the water to the place where feet could fail, they're willing to say, keep my eyes above the waves, Father. I've got to stay focused on you because this is dangerous territory. Look at these things that are written about Paul. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23 I have been in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren." I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. Does that sound like something you want to sign up for? I've met people who've said, I really wish I could have just walked with Paul. Really? Because that's what you're signing up for. You think about that guy with his broken-down body who's had his back beaten so many times, many theologians think his back was broken when he says, I had a thorn in the flesh. Think of him sleeping on the ground at night, and we're not talking in cots. Then you begin to understand why Paul writes what he does in verse 20 of Romans chapter 15. And thus, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. Let's shift this away from Paul for just a minute and shift it to you. Do you have something in your life that you really, really want to do for the glory of God? Just assess yourself for a moment. Do you have a holy ambition? You should. You should have a holy ambition. Moms, dads, singles, children, elderly, I don't care what age you are. Do you have something that drives you? I want to put the phrase from 1520 up on the screen, but this is the English Standard Version. You just read the New American Standard Version. I think the word ambition which is traded out for the word aspire, is actually more resonant with us in our world of English. The word ambition in the Greek language, if if you take it, it's actually a compound word. It's a putting together of the word phylos, which is love, and the Greek word time. We understand that time. It's a love of time, a love of how I'm investing my time Do you have something that focuses you on your daily activities that helps you decide, I wanna go to Rome, but I can't go to Rome yet. I really wanna come to you guys. but I've been prevented from doing that. Because of this holy ambition, is there an eternal passion in your life? I'm asking you this question, what gets you out of bed in the morning other than a two-year-old that needs breakfast or a paycheck that needs to go in the bank? Is there something beyond that? Just doing this daily life routine. We've got to begin asking ourselves, okay, where does that come from, Mark? Where does that ambition come from? Let's look first at this Greek word, and I didn't put this one in your notes intentionally. It's the last one I promise I'm going to give you, but I didn't want to put it in your notes just so you would really read the definition. This is the word ambition in the Greek language. To be fond of honor eager or earnest to do something. Now, if you misread that, you might be thinking, well, okay, now I get it. Paul's all about his ego. He's fond of the honor for himself. No, that's not what he said. I have this ambition to preach the gospel of Jesus. See, this is fond of the honor of how do I make Jesus more famous? How do I make Jesus more known? Well, where does that kind of ambition come from? Because what you're really looking at here, church, is a holy passion an ambition that comes from God, and it's eternal. What drives it? Well, a crucial part of the answer is found in verses 20 and 21. We just looked at those. If, if you don't have your Bible open, this isn't going to help you, but just think back to what we just read. If you have your Bible open, just glance at it again. I'll read it to you. Just hear it real carefully. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, and then he stops, and he quotes the Old Testament. Isaiah 52. They who have not known shall hear. Those who have not seen shall understand. Isaiah wrote that hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked this planet. It was a prophetic statement that when Jesus comes, people who have no relationship with God whatsoever, they're going to begin to understand who God is. So Paul's quoting really familiar stuff. He's quoting stuff from his own upbringing from the book of Isaiah, and he's saying, I set my heart to talk about Jesus to people who have no knowledge of him whatsoever. I'm going to put a quote on the screen that comes from the 1800s, and you may have already read it, and maybe you think that's kind of an obscure thing. Why did he include that? I'll show you why in just a second. This comes from H.C.J. Moule and he was a professor and a theologian. He said this in 1890. Would that the principle of it, the preaching of the gospel where it was not known, could have been better remembered in the history of Christendom and not the least in our own age. He said that in 1890. Uh, you might be tempted to think back 150 years in time, wow, well, people were so much moral back then. They lived for God so much better back then. No, H.C.J. Moule is correcting you on saying, no, that's not true. Even in the 1800s, we weren't remembering that Jesus needed to be made famous. Even in our own age, he says. See, in the broadest application, verse 21 is referring to the process of evangelism. How are you speaking into the lives of other people who don't know Jesus? As Paul said, this is my ambition, to speak to people who have not heard. And I promise you, they are found everywhere. You graduating high school this year? Stepping out into new territory, I promise you, the environment you're going into, work, school, you're going to encounter people who know nothing about Jesus. They may know the name of Jesus as a swear word, but they don't know Jesus as Savior. Paul said, these are the people I'm trying to go after. Now, be clear on this. God does not call every single believer in Jesus to be an evangelist. What he does ask you to do is be a witness so, how you live and how you talk, how you walk and act, it matters because people learn about Jesus through you. If they know that you're a believer and they should, if they don't, they need to. They learn about Jesus through you. So, here's the relevant thing for you and me today we know that Paul was called on the road to Damascus, God knocked him off his horse. And then by the time you get to Acts 26, you see that Jesus gives him this mandate and says, you're going to go, Paul, and you're going to reach the Greek-speaking world. You're going to be a light to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. So he gets a call straight from heaven, and God sends him out. And then he says in Romans 15, I've got this ambition. It gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm going to speak of Jesus everywhere he's not been named. He quotes Isaiah 52, those who have never heard are going to hear of him. So, this guy's been headed for the frontier. Now, watch Paul model how to get the holy ambition. He's had this encounter with Jesus. You, if you're a believer in Jesus, have had an encounter with Jesus. At some point, you decided not to be disobedient anymore, but to be obedient and to follow Jesus in faith. So, you got the same thing going for you that Paul had going for him. But the second part is the thing that's compelling to me. He bases or roots his ambition in the word of God. He grounds his ambition there. That's why he quotes Isaiah. God said, there's people who have never heard of him. I'm going to those people. So he takes his ambition for God and he roots it in God's word. So the answer to where does this ambition come from? First, it comes from an encounter with Jesus. And secondly, it's shaped by the word of God. So hear this. As you soak in, as you drink in the word of God, maybe you just read a little bit at a time and it doesn't make sense to you, but as you do that more and more and more over a period of time, that truth burns into your life. God says his word is alive and active and sharp and it does things. And He'll burn it into you until it's a holy ambition. And if that hasn't happened for you yet... Ask God for that. Don't be afraid to do that. Do you think he's going to tell you no? Right? He's not going to do that. He's like, I've been waiting for you. Thank you for doing that. He's not going to tell you no, and I will promise you, God never leads you to a purposeless ambition. It's always going to be purposeful. It's always about advancing his kingdom. Somebody better say amen to that. It's always about that. It's always about drawing glory to himself. So here's the basic principle that underlines this holy ambition stuff. It should be the desire of every believer that the unsaved people whom you know that you do life with, that they would at least be given an opportunity to understand. That's the key factor that's driving the building of the new building, right? It's not just to give us more space, it's not just to give us a new environment. It's because of what God's doing among us, and we want to bring more people in to understand this relationship with Jesus. I would tell you that for the last seven years, I've been sitting in that wicker chair in the very back back there doing my studies on a weekly basis. I take a little roll-top desk out of the closet over there in the corner because seven years ago, we hired Gary Post as a pastor of administration here to oversee things, and we got a pretty small building, and it's very limited, and there's over 20 people on staff here. And there isn't enough workspaces for everybody. So Rich, he's got a closet up here that he studies in and Michael and Kara, or Kyle and Kara, they use that little room up there. It's like four foot by six foot for managing financial things. And then there's people that are crammed all over the place. I gave my study area to Gary and I've been sitting in a wicker chair for seven years. If my whole goal in getting to the new building was just so I had an office space, that'd be wrong, wouldn't it, Church? I mean, it'd be great, because I told Lori the first time I sit in that new office, I'm going to sit on the floor and cry, because I go, "Wow, I got some space again. But that can't be the motivating reason. That's just new space. It's got to be a tool for the advancing the name of Jesus. That's why we're building that building. That's why we're doing what we're doing so that people who have never heard are going to have an opportunity to hear. I'll just remind you again, God doesn't call every person who is a believer to be an evangelist. But He does call us to walk in such a way that it draws people into relationship. So we're understanding where this ambition comes from. Now that all helps you understand that there's this holy ambition that's driving Paul But he makes a transition in verse 23 now. And now you're going to see why we couldn't finish this today. Go with me to verse 23. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints... This is astounding to me. Verse 23, he says, I no longer have any room for work in this region. It, it might make you recoil and say, really, Paul? What? In that whole 1,400-mile swath, every person has come to faith in Jesus? I, really, Paul, are you finished? We know there are many people who are living in the outlying area that have never heard of Jesus. What's going on? How do I understand that statement? Is, is Paul just tired? Is he quitting? Well, no. <laughs> I can say that emphatically. That, that is not the case. That's not what's going on here. Remember Paul's passion? His passion is to bring Jesus to people who don't know Jesus? Well, that f- passion has got a, a function to it, and that, and that function kept him from doing other things that were good. I really want to come to you. But he knows that this ambition is so powerful and so strong, he's got to stay focused. And that's what I'm asking about this morning. What do you have in your life that's getting you out of bed in the morning that keeps you focused? Paul's passion has been to bring Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. So he says in verse 23, I've longed for many years to come to you. But in verse 22, he says, this holy ambition to bring Jesus to the frontier, it kept me from personally doing what I wanted to do. So that's why he says in verse 22, the reason I've been hindered from coming to you is because of this issue. So check this in your own life, a God goal, a godly ambition. It doesn't only have the power to get you out of bed in the morning. It has the power to give focus to your life. It'll keep you from doing many other things that you would find you'd like to do. But for Paul's part, he's been on the front lines. He's been on the front lines for a long time. And he's saying, I have completed the front line assignment. I've planted a lot of churches and I've led thousands of people to faith in Christ. And in this region, I'm done. Interestingly, during that period of time, he collected a lot of money. I mean, bags of money. And he talks about it in verse 26. Verse 26. While he's been on the front line, he's been working through churches, and they've collected a lot of money, and they want to help starving people. Go with me to verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Keep going, verse 28. Verse 28. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. Doesn't it sound like he's laid his plans? He's the senior graduating high school, and he thinks he knows what his future holds. He's got a strategy. I know what tomorrow is going to bring. Keep going. I know, verse 29, when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So it's his desire that Rome will send him on his way, and they're going to send him with support and with spiritual and material blessing, but for now, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going to deliver this money, this bags of money. And think about this period of time. There's no debit cards. There's no checks. There's no dollar bills. It's all coinage. That thing he talked about being a target of robbers, this is real. He's got an entourage traveling with him, people that want to knock him off so they can have the money that he's collected. He wants to get back there. He wants to go to Spain because for Paul, Spain is the unconverted world of the West. The Gentile nation and the Romans, they have sent many Greek-speaking people off into Spain as slaves to serve the elite and the financially prosperous people of Spain and Paul's apparently very attracted to this. So he wants to get to Spain but he's going to stop in Rome on his way. So watch how he calls the church to action now because he thinks he knows his plan. Verse 30, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayer to God for me that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. As I read this, Paul seems really confident about tomorrow. He seems like he knows exactly what's going to happen. I've laid my plan. I've laid my strategy, but still he calls the church to join him in prayer because There's a sense of uncertainty about tomorrow. I'm not really sure I know what tomorrow holds, but I'm making a plan for tomorrow. So he's calling the church to come behind him because what could happen might not go well. And So he's using this language when he says, "I, I want you to come alongside and fight for me, spiritually fight for me, strive together with me. Why? Because there's this group of disobedient people Remember we said earlier that if you follow Jesus, you're living in obedience to God? Well, there's this group of people who have heard about Jesus and said, no, thank you very much. I'm not interested, Paul. Well, he's got these disobedient group of people who want him in jail. They want him actually dead. The Greek language actually renders it, they're unpersuadable, meaning they will not be convinced and it's an active disbelief. So the Holy Spirit has warned him day in and day out of the dangers that are ahead. You can read about that in Acts 20. So here's what I see Paul doing. He's modeling true humility. The humility that only comes after doing life day in and day out for years and years and years, having been knocked down and have to pick yourself back up again. Paul's modeling true humility, and he's sensing things could go really, really south. And so he asks people to pray for him within the church. Do you know what keeps you from asking other people to pray for you? It's pride. The times when I don't ask somebody to pray for me for the things I'm going through, it's it's me thinking, I got this, I can do this, no problem. That's human nature. We think, I got this. I don't need other people to know about it or to pray for me. That's why I love the prayer ministry here at New Hope, the email thing that Chris oversees. If you don't receive those emails, you should because that's brothers and sisters in Christ praying for each other and nothing will motivate you to pray for someone like those emails will. And Paul's praying. He's saying, will you guys pray for me that I would be rescued from these people who have rejected Jesus? So check this. Don't reach for your car keys yet. We're almost done. But hear this. His ultimate desire is that by the will of God, he's going to go to Rome. That's why I'm going to compel you to come back next week for Romans part 89b, because we're going to leave Paul hanging in this moment. We've we got to wrap this up. What happens to him when he does this? Because as we leave him this morning, he's headed in the opposite direction. Even though he really wants to go to Rome. Even though he's fulfilled all of his responsibility from Jerusalem to Illyricum, uh, just check this geographically. He's writing the book of Romans from the city of Corinth. If you go from Corinth all the way down to Jerusalem, that's 1,000 miles. So he not only has to make up that 1,000 miles, he's also got to go another 1,000 miles to get to Spain, a 2,000 mile detour. Why is he doing this? And what happens when your plans don't go according to your plans? Even if you're Paul and you're only doing what you know God wants you to do, what do you do when you end up sitting in jail? And maybe you're thinking, man, I really wanted to be in Spain. Why am I sitting in chains? How do you respond in that moment when your plans don't go according to your plans? Oh, you remember that God's got the big picture, church, because the book of Proverbs tells us specifically that we plan our ways, we determine our strategies. We see Proverbs 16:9, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I'm going to pray right now for us that we would retain this sense of surrender. I know many of you are feeling it right now. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do with me. Michael is about to come and lead us in a song that is absolutely not only an ancient hymn, but it's a song of surrender. It's saying, God, you're my vision. And if you're not in that place right now, ask God to be stronger in your life that he would be your vision instead of you being your vision. So I'm gonna pray for us right now that you would be rooted that way, that I would be rooted that way, that we would be chasing after God's plans. Would you join me in that? Father, I lift up every single person both those watching online, those who will watch later this week and those who fill the auditorium right now, that we would be in this place that we feel this sense of wanting to surrender right now, that that would be true of us tomorrow and Wednesday and Friday and that it wouldn't quickly fade. But as a result of asking you to be our vision, that that sense of surrendering would stay with us through the course of this week so that we would be chasing after, Father, what would be a holy ambition in our life. I know as I stand here, Father, that some of us are lacking direction. And we're really wondering what I should be doing with my life. You're the source of that. You're the source of that direction, so God, make it evident to us. This week, I'm asking that you would do a work in the lives of your people here at New Hope. Give us a reason to get out of bed in the morning that goes beyond a paycheck. Drive us to want to advance the kingdom for the name and the glory and the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen.